Welcome to the Open Doors live podcast, your window into what following Jesus looks like in some of the darkest places in the world. I'm your host, Jordan, and together we'll meet the persecuted church, gritty, courageous, passionate followers of Jesus from around the globe. We hope these stories remind you that God is doing wild and wonderful things around the world and that you can be a part of it. Hello and welcome to the Open Doors Live podcast. It is so wonderful to be with you all again. And today we have a very special interview on the podcast with two Bible smugglers, John and Jill Hanna. Hey, John. Hey, Jill. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It is so wonderful to be with you. And we had the privilege of hearing some of your journey today in our staff devotions. So it really is such a privilege to be with you guys today. And some of your stories are just incredible. And there's too much to fit in one podcast. But um, one of our church team members, Joel, he met you through uh, Shell Harbor Community Church. Is that Correct. correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. So you guys are based in on the south coast around south Kayama. Coast, yeah, Shell Harbour. Beautiful. What what an area. It's so yeah, really, it's beautiful. It's stunning down there. I know. Yeah. Is it? Um, there's a beach down there called Oh the Farm. Correct. That's yeah. down Shell Harbour way. That's yeah. on the Shell Harbour exit. It's a very well known surfing beach. It is very, very beautiful. Um, and Joel was just so encouraged uh, by s- some stories that he had heard from you guys. And so we thought we just absolutely have to have you on the podcast. So thank you for joining us. Um, and I know that you've been on a number of Bible smuggling expeditions with Open Doors, which is crazy in itself. How did you actually get involved with Open Doors? Uh, well, we've got a flashback to 1980. Um that's when we first got involved with it. I um, went to, we were attending a church in um, Wollongong and um, a young Chinese man had been smuggled out of China um, because the bamboo curtain was very up and powerful in those days. And a fellow by the name of Joseph Lee and he came down and spoke about what it's like to be a Christian in China. I heard his message um, I thought, yeah, that's that's nice, but didn't really have any inclination how I could be involved with it or anything like that. But I went to the back of the hall and um, there was um, these brochures by Open Doors and um, I uh, picked up um, a couple of the brochures and I was having a look at it and then on one of it, one of them it said, you can become involved by being... Uh, a prayer partner, a financial partner, or by going and being a Bible smuggler. And I went, what? we? that's incredible. <laughs> you know, so um, I never thought there was such a thing, you know. And um, so I knew that um, my wife Jill, you know, she had to be in unity with me on this, uh, on this uh, project. It's a big uh, commitment. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you need the yeah. wife's approval for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get away without that. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, yeah, so I just uh, put it like a fleece before the Lord where I, um, I took the brochures home but I hid them under a whole pile of other paperwork that was sitting on our dining room table and that. And I just said to the Lord, well, if you want me to be involved, um, uh, I want you to let Jill see these brochures and be excited about it, about being involved in it, you know. And then I went to work the next day and um, <clears throat> anyway, um, I came home from work and here's Jill, have you seen these things? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they want us... They want uh, Bible smugglers. And I thought, oh, hello, it's on. That's confirmation. It was confirmation. You know, Jill's not one to really jump at things like that, you know. Um, And, uh, yeah, so uh, that was was the beginning of the journey. And That's amazing. And I, I love it because it's so relatable. Most of our listeners, at least, will have come across the, you know, an open doors rep in their 
church and they're hearing these stories and then they're thinking, how do we get involved, you know, and God makes it, you know, clear the path for each of us of how to get involved and how, whether that's through prayer or financial partnership or for you guys, it was Bible smuggling. I just love it. You just went straight for the, the most radical thing that you could do. (laughs) (laughs) And so, uh, where did you actually smuggle Bibles into? Uh, well, initially we went to, um, we thought we were going to China, but uh, that changed and then we um, ended up going to Eastern Europe and um, we've been into uh, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, um, through Yugoslavia and Hungary and then um, we've done numerous trips into um, China and also Burma. Wow. Yeah. We were actually praying for Burma, Myanmar just today um, Mm. as a team, praying for Christians. I mean, that's just such a variety of places that you guys have been to and and smuggled Bibles into. Um, And and you took your kids with you. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, how old were your kids at the time? Well, we had two children at that time and um, uh, Rebecca and Eli. Yeah, okay. So on um, your initial kind of expedition, you had two and then your family grew and by the by the final ones you had three, correct? So you have three now. Yeah, we have three children and um, uh, one of our sons has uh, been a part of uh, going into China. Wow. And that with us, yeah. That's such awesome legacy. Jill, how was it for you taking your family as a mum into some of these places where you were smuggling Bibles? Oh, it was um, interesting. Um, it, it wasn't difficult. Um, and I just think God just prepared the way, really. Our children were very, um, um, very good travellers. And um, God used them actually in um, in a couple of circumstances where we had to cross a border into um, a, a communist country, and God used them in a, an unusual way to just um, um, provide a, a distraction, I guess, to the guards. Yeah, tell us about that. What did that look like? Well, when we were going into Hungary, um, the the chief border guard there saw our, our two-year-old and got him out of the car and thought he was the most beautiful little boy. Aww. And he um, picked him up and took him into the office and showed him to everybody and and um, they gave him lollies and oh, that's so cute. All sorts of lovely things. Meanwhile, you've got a car stacked full of Bibles. <laughs> yes, that's right. And so you're trying to get through the the checkpoint. Yes. So we we go in and we exchange our our money, and um, then a soldier would come over and um, look through the vehicle. And uh, we watched as he looked through the vehicle and and the officer, the head officer came out with Eli and said, um, how could anybody with such a beautiful, beautiful boy do anything wrong? <laughs> Meanwhile. <laughs> and so he packed him back in the car and away we went. Well, that... That's amazing. One of the one of the probably something that you didn't anticipate was a perk of having the kids with you. Yeah, and that's right. What yeah. a way for the kids to grow up. All those Bible expeditions, they grew up knowing that there were believers around the world who didn't have access to the scripture. Yes, they did. And yeah. they grew up understanding the cost of what it takes to yeah. get it there. So can you just like logistically give me an understanding of what, how you packed the Bibles? Did you drive them across borders? I mean, how, how did it all work? Okay, so uh, the Bibles were packed by um, the office in Holland and um, we were told where they were. Uh, they had um, a cars bought for the purpose and engineered for the purpose. So, um, and they had... Um, uh, some cars had particular panels. No way. So that, that was Bible secret that you had, had little keys and stuff to get in. 
So they were in the, you know, the actual, um, what would you say, the frame of the car. Uh, and and often they were just in boxes. In our first trip they were just in boxes and our, our children slept on the boxes. Wow. And the prayer, the smuggler's prayer, the famous smuggler's prayer, did you find yourself praying? We God, always prayed those prayers. You made yeah. blind eyes see, so now make seeing eyes blind, blind yes. as you cross through all those checkpoints. Wow, what That's an experience. Right. Um I, I want to focus a little bit on North Korea because it's simply mind-blowing to me that you've been to North Korea. I don't meet anyone who's been to North Korea. Uh, and for those listening at home, uh, North Korea is number one on the world watch list. So it is currently the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. It's a closed country. Uh, People aren't allowed in and people definitely aren't allowed out. Uh, It's a brutally hostile nation. Christians have no freedom to worship. And if discovered by authorities, believers are either sent to labor camps as political prisoners where the conditions are atrocious or they're killed on the spot and their families will share that fate as well. So it's an incredibly dangerous place to be a Christian and it's an incredibly dangerous place to even visit. Um, so what was your experience like in North Korea? You've both been on separate trips. Um, maybe, Jill, do you want to share with us your experience in North Korea and then and then we'd love to hear from John too. Well, I was invited to go on a prayer trip and um, it was the second, I think it was the second year that Australia had had... Um, uh, contact with the uh, North Korean government in regard to tourism. Yes, yeah, so um, the, the the tour group that I went with um, was run by a Christian gentleman and um, we went in, he, he held prayer trips. But, um, of course, nobody knew that in North Korea. Okay, so um, we... I flew into um, Beijing and we caught a train that took us right up the north of China and we changed trains at the border and we we caught the train down to Pyongyang. So we sort of saw a lot of the countryside. At that time uh, there was a, a very severe famine and we saw um, people in a lot of distress, uh, people were lying in the ground. There was no no vehicles. The um, I did see some um, oxen, um, and they were skin and bone. It was there was no food, no water, um, no power, and people would be standing by the railway tracks begging for food. That is so devastating and that is a famine, I guess, that mm. North Korea was trying to hide from the rest yeah. of the world. But when you see it up close like that, you see mm. just how deplorable the conditions are inside yeah. the country. When we got to Pyongyang, uh, it was uh, a different story. Everything was staged um, and we were provided with an amazing amount of food. It was embarrassing really. Um, and um, we visited many museums. Um, we visited schools, um, and we could not really make any personal contact with people. Um, however, I did um, escape one of the hotels and run down the street and have a look around, but uh, there was no eye contact. No North Korean would make eye contact with anybody from another country. So um, uh, every, everybody was watched. They had police um, on top of the buildings, all along the streets um, with guns and radios, for, you know, communication devices, um, watching what was going on in the streets. Um, there's a lot of paranoia. Um, there was music... Uh, praising uh, Kim Il-sung um, all the time. When we went to a performance, um, an artistic performance, it was the same music 
all over the country. Same, just different um, ways of playing, different arrangements, but the same song. Wow, so the same lyrics. The same lyrics. Praising the emperor. That's right. Over and over again. Over and over again. Wow, and they have no outside influence, do they? They don't have any? No. Wow. No, no, no TV. If you had a TV, it was um, you'd put it on and you'd see a newspaper article from um, the early 1940s. Wow. Before, before the armistice. That is just so fascinating. Mm. But obviously, I mean, you can see through the performance, you can see it's so interesting that you – they took you the long way to to see the countryside and the stark difference between the countryside and the city and the performative side of things for tourists. Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because you can see straight through it, right? Yes, you can. And uh, people lived in fear and there was no, um, what can I say, there's no freedom of expression. Wow. Um, and everything is orchestrated. So if the government wants you to um, do a performance in uh, for tourists or for the army, there was a lot of army people looking at the performances, but they were put on these performances and it was all the cultural indoctrination of um, Kim Il-sung and how wonderful he was and how how he was the god of the nation. They also promoted the, the Juchi idea with the Juchi Tower in um, Pyongyang, which is uh, their form of humanism, um, uh, communist humanism. And, um, yeah, the people were sad. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that's, it Nobody is smiled. Devastating. And, um, yes, it was a very, very sad country. Wow. Well, how about you, John? You went three years later, is that correct? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I went a couple of years later. And uh, uh, m- m- the trip that I was on was also a prayer trip, posing as a tourist trip, you know. But um, also um, uh, we were helping out. I, had a, I, t- I took in a whole pile of vitamins and minerals and medicines and everything. There were nearly eight outdated medicines as far as Australia was concerned, but they were still in good order and everything. And and um, and I had a friend who owns a couple of pharmacies. Uh, he managed to get me a whole pile of them and I was able to uh, get them transported over to... Um, I took them over there. They were, it's, it's a bit of a story, but anyway... Um, yeah, I took them over to uh, North Korea and gave them to the uh, officials over there and they were tickled pink with it because um, I, I, don't know, I, I suppose I wasn't exposed as much because I flew in from – I flew to Beijing, then I flew into Pyongyang and um, whereas uh, Jill caught a train in from Beijing into P- Pyongyang, I flew in and uh, – that was a bit of an experience because um, they were all uh, ex-Russian passenger jets that were on coming out of Beijing. This is a North Korean air, air and that. And um, there were people on board that were going into Pyongyang and, and they had um, rabbits, pigs, chooks on the plane in the aisles and everything. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm looking at it. Roaming free or? No, they were, they were sort of tied up, you know. But they, still. But, <laughs> but they were in the, in the aisle way and I thought, if anything happens to this aeroplane, there's no way you can get out of here, you know. <laughs> With all the pigs be in the over pigs and ducks and, <laughs> oh my God. and rabbits. Sounds you know? chaotic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, they were taken in because it was a, a food source. Course, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, they'd been uh, fortunate enough to be able to pick them up in, say, China, where they'd been, and then get them back to their families. And that. wow, um, yeah, because uh, the famine was in full blast, and had been in full blast for a couple of years, and basically it was because um, their agricultural had been centralised by the government, and um, 
and the centralised sort of government didn't have the knowledge of a normal farmer. And normal farmer knows when to plant and harvest and all that type of thing and what to plant and that, but bureaucrats don't, you know, and they make a mess of things and it was just that sort of situation had sparked and then some very bad climactic conditions and everything and uh, the country was literally starving. And like Jill, it was embarrassing because we were going in as tourists and um, this is a valuable source of um, hard currency, you know, overseas currency so they could trade and everything um, to them and they were giving us food and it was just we had full meals three times a day and I, I remember one time there um, that I had a whole um, spatchcock, you know, a chicken on a, on, a, on a plate to eat and I tried to not eat it and try to give it to the lady who actually was a waitress there, you know, mm. thinking maybe she can get it back to her family or something like that, you know. But no, she wasn't allowed to touch it. Oh, you know, and it was just, yeah. Just devastating. Yeah, it was because it was, the, you know, they were trying to present this picture to the tourists in the country of uh, we're so self-sufficient and so yeah. powerful and we have dignity and blah, blah, blah. But um, it, the actual fact was um, it was... Um, and horrific famine. When you hear of people eating grass and bark off trees and everything, it was just devastating, you know. And I saw a couple of them because um, we, they would, before we came into a city or something like that, they'd actually try to hide the, the victims of the famine away from where you're going. And um, and I managed to sort of duck around the back of buildings and see some people sometimes and, and uh, you, you know, and I thought, oh, wow, you know, to sort of see the real picture, not the painted picture that they want us to look at. Right. Yeah. And, and one of the guys on the trip, I remember he took a photo of a truck passing by with a bunch of people on the back and then um, we are in a bus and then the bus got pulled up by the guards and they said, uh, somebody here took photos of the people on the truck. And um, fortunately for the fella who was on our tour with this, I'll call it a tour, okay, um, he said, yeah, I did, and he had a digital camera. And uh, and so they had a look at the photos and they made him delete the uh, delete pictures. Delete the photo, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because... Um, and the reason for that said, well, why do you want them deleted? You know, we just thought they were pretty harmless sort of photos. Mm. Um, uh, no, our people don't look very good in that photo. Wow, so very image mm. focused. Yeah, they must. They they dare not lose face. Wow, you know. And John, you ended up on the TV in North Korea. <laughs> How did that actually happen? Um, well, it actually happened because um, um, some smart fellow that lives in Malaysia or, or Singapore has designed a, uh, a flower called a – it's an orange begonia flower. It's a great big flower. But he called it the Kim Jong-ilia. He named it after the president of North Korea. So if you're in business in North Korea or you – want to look good to the actual, the president of the country, um, you uh, buy plenty of these flowers and put them in an exhibition. Right. Yeah. And so we went, went through and some of our tour groups said, I never want to see another orange begonia in my life. <laughs> oh, because they're everywhere? Oh, they're everywhere, millions of them. So... How smart is that guy in Singapore? Right. He's, been he's making <laughs> bank. <laughs> he's earned a fortune off these flowers. That's fantastic. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, and so um, I had a, a previous problem the day before where I made um, what was deemed a uh, political statement. I was just innocently responding to something. 
But um, so I was in the bad books one day and then um, the next day um, we are at this exhibition flowers and, um, uh, and I sat down and I wrote a poem in the visitor's book and I was actually writing a poem to Jesus, you know, and uh, but they interpreted it as being it was a little bit, you know, um, double m- double meaning yeah. to it. Yeah, m- m- my poem, and uh, and they took it as being um, that I was extolling the virtues of their dear leader. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Kim Jong Il. And so um, as soon as I had written it, the uh, guards raced over, and um, <clears throat> they. Uh, looked at the poem and then they said, hey, hey, have a look at the, what this man's written, you know. And uh, <laughs> so um, the poem and and then me and because I was a bit of a curiosity too because I got a beard and most Asians don't have beards, you see. Right. Yeah, so um, they, uh, they started filming me and I was on national news that night. Oh, know. my gosh. What an experience. <laughs> you go from making a political statement and being public enemy number one and then the very next day you're a symbol of, of emperor worship for writing a poem about Jesus. I literally, I just think that's the funniest thing. Um, and and I heard that your guide took you somewhere that you shouldn't have gone. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I actually don't know this story. So yeah, well, look, I was told was, to ask it. It was winter time, so... Um, everything was frozen. Temperatures got down to about minus 50 degrees Celsius in no. the country. Yeah, and um, I was suffering badly uh, because Australian snow gear just not cut out for that sort no. of temperature. Um, but uh, there was a number of uh, Europeans and English on the same tour as me and um, and they had they, they kept on handing me gear to sort of look after me and that so I was, could remain nice and warm. But anyway, um, yeah, and I developed this relationship with uh, the guard, guide, he was, you know, and there was a number of guides, guards <laughs> that went on the bus with us and everything. And, uh, and I developed a relationship with this man and, uh, and anyway, uh, I, he asked me, he said, have, have you enjoyed your trip? And I said, well, uh, if I said, yes, I've enjoyed the trip. Um, I said, but if you came to Australia, I would possibly take you maybe to one museum, but where I would take you is I'd take you out in the bush, I'd take you, you know, um, to the beaches to see the natural scenery of Australia and... Um, because that's what we really enjoy. And I said, I've missed it here. I haven't been anywhere sort of natural. We've been going from one museum to another museum. I love how so. honest you were. You're just like, honestly, not the best. <laughs> I'm not much of a museum buff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, anyway, um, yeah, so he took a, a very big risk because you don't break away from protocol you know, we were travelling from one museum um, to uh, the, our lunch and we were a bit early and he said, he called me up and he said, and I wasn't the leader of the tour or anything like that, and um, he said, oh, Mr Hannah, he said, um, would you, uh, uh, it's very awkward for me, you know, we're a bit early for our appointment, so um, if I stop up here and you um, and I allow you got you people to get off the bus and um, and go into the bush that's here there's a national park here um, but I want you to promise to me that you'll get everybody back on the bus in a certain time frame you know so I went and talked to the other people that were on the bus with us and they all said, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And so um, that was the only time we were able to really break out and we went went into the actual bush and there was frozen waterfalls, there was snow drifts, there was beautiful lookouts and, 
everything and, and we got up there and we just praising God and just because we had no guards with us and, uh, and we just uh, and we were just praying together loudly and everything wow. and I got behind this frozen waterfall and, and it was like an echo chamber in there and I'm going hallelujah, praise God <laughs> and everything, you know. And um, wow. anyway, and praying for the country and everything. But um, and then I called out, okay, everybody back on the bus, you know. And so we all came back on the bus and and then the bus went to its next, next destination and, yeah, did what things a, like that. What a beautiful experience. I bet that's frozen, I mean pardon the pun, frozen in your mind. It's just a, <laughs> just an almost heavenly-like experience of just the beauty of the nature and just being able to just be free in the midst of this, you know, very controlled environment. Yeah. What, what a special moment. It was, you know, because even when we were praying, we, were, we would secretly sort of, we'd break into twos and threes and pretend we're, say, looking at a monument but and, and pretending that we're talking to one another, but we're actually praying for the country and praying for the situation in North Korea, yeah, you know, wow. under our breath. So, or, or not so much under our breath, but we'd be praying. And then if anybody, any guard came close to you to check out what you were doing, you know, we'd um, just start talking, break, break out of the prayer and just start into a conversation with each other and that, you know, had to be very careful. Wow, and very, and very paranoid so, country. And the reason that you have to be so careful of um, making it obvious that you're a Christian or or practicing any kind of Christianity in North Korea um, is because Christianity is seen as a uh, as a particular threat to the dicta- dictatorial ideology and governance of the country's regime. So Christians are kind of viewed as enemies of both the leadership and society. Is that how you would see it? The Christians are kind of seen as the enemy of their ideology? Yeah, probably you could answer this one, Jill. I would definitely agree with that. And um, coming home from my visit there, I, I summed up my experience as ideology kills. Wow. Any sort of ideology is a killer because it um, thwarts human um, creativity. It um, binds people up into law um, and, yeah, people can't be themselves. Yeah, they can't pursue their own... um, search into what is reality for them. It's just a beautiful reminder that uh, the law of God that we get to walk in as followers of Jesus Mm. is freedom. Like the law can be summarized as love Mm. your neighbors Mm. and, Mm. um, and, and love God. What Mm. a beautiful freedom and no earthly ideology. You're right. Jill can ever produce that, um, that level of freedom it's just there's one ideology that's beautiful and that's freedom and that's god's yeah, truth that's um, god's truth yeah. yeah that's right actually there's a a psalm or in in psalm 119 there's a verses verse that says god's law is boundless wow i love that it has no boundaries that's beautiful so in other words you know if we're obedient to god and love him and um um, and obey him, then that leads us into full freedom. It's incredible yeah. that actually if we're looking for freedom, it's not found apart from God, but it's found in pursuing him. That is so yeah, beautiful. That's right. mm. And you guys have been on so many trips and you've been to so many places and um, I know you've got many miracle stories to share, um, but what what did you see God do along the way? Maybe do you want to share some of the miracles that you guys saw, um, some miracle provision or some open doors, also pardon the pun. Sorry, I'm full yes. of terrible puns today, but <laughs> yeah, some of the miracle stories. Well, um, when we were um, going into I've forgotten the country now but we were traveling through Czechoslovakia and we we arrived in Prague on early Sunday morning and uh, John says well how do we get through Prague and I, I opened the map and there was a big hole where all the 
you know, the creases in the map came where Prague was and being an old map and being used by many people, Prague was just a big hole. I could put my finger through it and I said, well, I don't know how we're going to get through Prague. Um, the map is useless. So anyway, we, we, <laughs> we started on our way across a bridge and started through some, down some roads and, um, and anyway, we ended up in a cul-de-sac. Well, it was actually a building site and it had all these big piles of, um, of rubble uh, that was sort of bricks from old buildings with no way around. I said, well, we're lost, John. I, I've got no idea. We, we can't go forward. We can't go back. We don't, I don't know where we are. And anyway, this guy on a, on a bicycle just happened to come by, just happened to come by. And um, I did catch his eyes, although he didn't actually look at me. He just waved at me. He just waved at me and went like this, put his hand, waved his hand and said, follow me like this with his hand. Didn't look back at us or anything. And anyway, he was a funny sort of fellow. He did look like a Czech. He had... um, he was a workman. He had his um, handkerchief tied in four knots on the top of his head, short, short um, shorts and um, a singlet top. And um, anyway, he waved us forward and I said, John, follow that man. And he led us around this, this pile of bricks and then while he was in front of us, he didn't look back. He just pointed to the right with his hand and I said, he's telling us to go down there, John. Go down that road there. And we, we went a bit for, forward and there we found this very narrow alleyway and which just our car could fit. No way. And it led us down to the river and out of the city. Are you serious? It's like God sent a little messenger to direct you the most intricate way. That's right. And... When I turned back to to wave to the fellow and say thank you, he had totally disappeared. No way. I mean, what are you thinking in that moment? Uh, I thought he was an angel. Yeah, right. I would be thinking the same thing. Because he didn't act like a human. You know, like a human would want to talk to you or want to, you know, gesture more. Or But um, no, it was very much he was the guide for the day for us. So, wow. you know... We would have been... He didn't even know where you were going. We had no idea. <laughs> we were totally and utterly lost. And that fellow turned up at the right time. And it was just a little a little way through around around the bricks. Nobody would have gone there. And there was a, a narrow alleyway that took us down to the river and right out of the city. Wow. What a miracle. It's wonderful. Yes. He's an angel. I think so. <laughs> That's, I mean, yeah, what an incredible story. And I, I know you have, I've heard maybe five plus miracle stories from you guys just in the time that we've been together this morning. So I know that there's so many more uh, where that comes from. How did the adventures that you've had uh, with God change the way you see the global church? I mean, most of our listeners would attend a local church. Uh, They would attend a church within four walls and probably a lot of church activities. But I'm not sure how regularly we're thinking about the the church as the body of Christ or the wider body, the global church. How did your missions and your season smuggling Bibles and being on the road uh, transform your perception of the global church? Well, I see... The global that I'm part of that global church. Actually, even though we do belong to a local church, I am more um, connected with the international church, the global church, in my spirit um, and in my heart. That's where my heart is. And uh, so I love to hear of any type of mission, any type of um, bringing together and um, of, of the global church in any form. Um, I love that. So uh, I think basically it, looking back all those years ago, um, even though I had 
I was mis- more missionary-minded than probably a lot of other people would have been. Um, actually connecting with people who couldn't speak my language but loved the same God. Wow. It was a binding and a um, a uniting that um, I don't think would ever be taken away. It's just... Um, made an indelible impact in my life, that I belong to somebody over there in Hungary or Romania or China or Pakistan or wherever, that we're all one and that we love each other and that that love just is is the same everywhere. It is this unbelievable feeling when you get with a believer where you guys don't speak the same language but there's this shared look in your eye <laughs> of love for God mm. and to hear them pray and to pray for them, even mm. though you don't understand exactly what you're praying, yeah. there's this deep connectedness. Yes, um, that's right. Yeah. Mm, definitely. And it, and it never goes away. It's just implanted in your life and uh, and I'm looking forward to heaven. Wow. Yeah. When we're, when we're all there together. Yeah, it is, right. I think, connecting with um, the global church or especially those who suffer for their faith in Christ, it does remind us that our prize isn't here. You know, mm. our prize is heaven. Yeah, our prize right. is, you know, yet to come. Mm, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. Um, did the hunger of the persecuted church or persecuted Christians uh, for the Bible impact your own relationship with the Bible? So when you came home from those trips, you saw their joy when they received a Bible um, in places like Romania or, or Hungary uh, and then you come home and you open your Bible. How, how did seeing their joy impact your own relationship with the Bible? Yeah, look, um, it, it, it does have an impact. Um, like, for instance, uh, in our church in, in those early days in the um, – when we first went in the non- early 1980s and that, um, <clears throat> it was um, there was a lot of what we call these days the prosperity doctrine. So if you weren't becoming rich and you weren't being successful and all that type of thing, um, then really you weren't in faith, okay? That, 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 that sort of doctrine was running around a lot of churches and that and I heard it and, and everything – and then when I went over there and you met people that had nothing and um, but they had everything and uh, there was the element of faith and what they believed and, they were, they were, you know, you, honestly I felt like I was the one that was really lacking and um, wow. I was the one that was missing out. You know, because these guys and ladies and everything that we met, you know, they just had a beautiful walk with um, with the Lord. And, you know, on our first trip, we, we met a, a Catholic nun, our first t- target person. We always had about three people that we, we'd have to memorise their names and addresses and everything, you know, and find them. Wow. And to do to a deliver the Bibles, so, yeah. Yeah, to, to deliver the Bibles to. And um, if one of them wasn't available, then you moved on to the next one and then the next one, you know. And so, um, you know, I, I used to have a thing about Catholics and uh, our first one was a Catholic. I think Brother Andrew likes to, um, he, he likes to test you. Your, your boundaries and everything. Totally, you know? yeah. yeah. You know, like uh, put you outside your boundary, your comfort zones and yes. stuff like that. Push so, the boundaries of acceptable Christianity for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You think, oh, do Catholics really believe like Protestants and that type of thing? You right. Know? Um, Tears down those barriers yeah, that we construct, yeah. yeah. And um, we met this uh, nun and, uh, and we were – Delivering the Bibles, you know, like on each of those East, Eastern European trips that we did, um, we were carrying around about two and a half thousand full-size Bibles and usually about 600, 800 Gospels of John for outreach and everything. And, That's um, a lot of Bibles. 
Yeah, a lot of Bibles, tonnage. Wow. You know, and so here we were, we'd, we'd have to get them out of the panels in the vehicles and out of cupboards <laughs> and everything, pack them into these big garbage bags and then we'll hand them over and uh, we're at this place called Chesterhoa in Poland. And, and mind you, to be a Pole is to be a Catholic, Okay. Um, that's what it's they like say. woven into their a cultural identity. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And um, and here we are, we're transferring these these Bibles from our vehicle across to her. She had an office, and uh, and one of the bags broke open. Bibles spilled everywhere. <laughs> you know, there's like a hundred Bibles on the ground. All these pilgrims running around. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you know. And guards. And I would have Ru- loved Russian, to see that. Russian <laughs> troops were in the country. And a lot of those Bibles were actually Russian ones that they were passing on to um, the uh, Russian soldiers. They were outreaching to the out- Russian soldiers. Wow. And this nun was part of that outreach and everything. And, and she was just a beautiful lady. Here we are, you know, and she's singing hallelujah. She's picking up these Bibles and I'm going, you're beautiful, you know. <laughs> Just fantastic, you know, in this ultra-religious sort of environment, you know, and there's this beautiful person of faith. Wow. Just her her love for Jesus just shining through. Yeah, it was, you know. And, uh, yeah, we had popes as contacts and in the Orthodox Church and all sorts of things. Your your reflection that... You know, we think we're rich, but then you go there and you see, you know, just their richness of faith. I've just pulled up Revelation three. Um, <laughs> man, it just it mm. it. I think so so much of the content of Revelation speaks to our current environment, mm. and this is to the church in Laodicea. Mm. And it says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I've grown wealthy and need nothing. That's like the mm. the, the doctrine that you're mentioning before. Yep. But you don't realize that you're wretched, <clears throat> pitiable, poor, blind and naked. And then it says, I count, counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you might become rich, white garments so that you may be clothed and that your shameful nakedness might not be exposed and a salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Mm. I just think that passage where it says, buy from me gold refined by fire, it speaks that faith that only comes from him, refined by the fire of suffering. Mm. And that's what you are seeing in that woman, that, that, that faith that came at a cost that had been refined by the fire of suffering, um, and and you know that 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 ministers to us, you know that mm. we become then the students of persecuted Christians because of the beauty of their faith. Yeah, yeah, and you know, really, it's not about us. Um, we didn't go because we want some experience or anything like that. We just went because we were meant to go. You know, the Lord called us to go. But um, so often people will say, oh, I could never do what you did. But I, I think anybody can do it. Anybody, you know, if if the Lord says go, you should go. It's as simple as that, you know. And, um, uh, and it gives you a testimony that becomes your life, part of your life and and you end up with this substance, this invisible substance inside of your body that is is a point of strength and a point of power, and and um, and uh, and it's not really of you. It's been born in there by God, because you've learnt to trust Him and everything, and and uh, and you've seen Him work. I, I can't okay. stress it enough, you know. And these people. You know, um, there's a there's a videotape by Open Doors, and it's the 40th anniversary videotape. And there's a fella on there playing a tambourine. His name is Sandor, and he was our contact in Hungary. And look, I'm about to break into tears <laughs> because uh, we went to his place, and <clears throat> and this guy had he had a lot of daughters and. How's the timing of God, you know? 
one of his daughters was engaged to an Englishman and the Englishman was able to speak Hungarian and his daughter was able to translate Hungarian into English and that as well. And they were there just for that time that we arrived there. And so we were able to talk freely with them and that, you know, and Sandor and his wife and, and that. And, and he took me down. He said, oh, come, come. I said, there's somebody out in the road there watching. He said, that's okay. It's just one of the brothers, okay. And um, this guy had... Um, the political – see, there's two types of police in a lot of these countries and there's a political police and there's a civil police. And the political police had come in, found out he was a Christian, um, st- stripped him of all the clothes and blankets and towels and everything out of their house and food, took all that away and just left them in the clothes that they were standing, him and his wife and his daughters, and it's the middle of winter – and um, and said, well, we'll see how big your God is, you know, survive this. And, uh, and so he, they got down and prayed and, um, and Sandor was told, go and see the actual um, the local policeman. So he went down to the local policeman and the local policeman had compassion on him and got him blankets and clothes and everything for his children and family and they actually survived you know and um he had a he had a room in his house probably as big as just this sitting area where we're sitting and uh that was um had benches across it and he had his church there but he's He's also had a uh, an area dug out underneath his house and that's where we put the vehicle when we were offloading all the Bibles that we had in it. And um, and he said, are you enjoying being down here, John? And I said, sorry, Sandal. And he said, because um, this was my first underground church, underground in our house. Literally underground. Literally underground. He says, you are in an underground, underground church. <laughs> an underground, <laughs> underground church. Yeah. I love and then, it. Um, yeah, and we just had a lovely time. And on the videotape, he's there playing his tambourine and smiling and laughing and everything. And whenever I get to see, I went looking for it the other day. I couldn't find it, but that's just another thing. I watch that video and I go Sandor, and I burst into tears. Yeah, you know, it still affects me. They these people rub off you in a very emotional and very. Um, eternal sort of way and I'm just waiting for heaven to come, you know. To be Love with to be them. with these guys, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. It's, it's beautiful yeah. all those years later to just feel so connected. I know that for our team as well, it's really hard to talk about our field trips or our time with persecuted believers without crying mm. uh, because it does. It just, you you realise how knitted together we really are. Yep. Um, and, yeah, any chance to be connected to them is beautiful. Well, I mean, guys, it has been, I feel like we could sit here all day. I want to hear so much more. We'll have to get you back for all another week. podcast. But um, <laughs> thank you so much for your uh, courageous faith, for your obedient yes to Jesus for your gentleness and your gentle love for people and um, just for your big heart that you bring and that you you've brought to this conversation I know it's just um, it's blessed me hugely and I know it's gonna encourage the believers could I could I get you each to pray uh, for our listeners um, and and for the current Bible delivery that's happening at the moment um, and you know as we as a as a ministry uh, prepare to send a wave of Bibles around the world. Um, if you could pray for everyone who, like you, was delivering Bibles as well. Um, and for those of us who might be thinking, well, where's our place in all of this, um, that God would just uh, direct our path like you mentioned. Yeah. I would firstly like to say thank you very much, especially to all the uh, people that are supporters of Open Doors and Persecuted Church, you know, because it's it's everybody's contribution um, that adds up and it puts people like ourselves 
on the front line, you know. It takes 100 people to get one person out there. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I just want to say, you know, that, you know, Open Doors has been such a worthy organisation to support and everything and, and we're just so thankful for the opportunities to be able to go and be a part of this, you know. There's just, um, you know, we've had 40 years, over 40 years of supporting the ministry and everything and it's just, um, it's been a wonderful experience. And um, Well, thank you for inspiring us. Yeah, yeah. this has been incredible to have this time with you guys. Um, Maybe, John, if you want to pray first and then Jill can pray. Um, Yeah, let's pray for our listeners. Let's pray for the Bible distribution projects. Mm. Let's pray for all our local partners. Um, Yeah, let's pray that we would be rich spiritually um, and not just physically. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's good. Yeah, well, okay. Um, Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for... You know, the wonderful people that do support this ministry of Open Doors. Um, I just uh, ask that you'll bless them, Father God, so that a spirit of generosity would just pour over them and know that, you know, whatever they're doing, whether they're praying for the ministry or giving to the ministry or even going in the ministry at times, Father, um, I just ask that, you know, they would be um, generous and but that they would also be blessed abundantly so that they would be enriched and enriched again to just be able to give and go and be involved in that, Father God. And I thank you for our brothers and sisters, Father God. I bless you, Lord. Yes, thank you, Father God, that you love your word. Mm. Your word is above everything. Mm. And Lord, we just praise you for the richness of your word. That by reading your word and devouring it, Lord, letting it become part of us, Lord, that you are transforming human beings into spiritual beings, eternal beings that are a blessing to you, Father God, and achieving your purposes. Lord, I pray for the Bible distributions that are happening even now. I pray for uh, all those Bibles, whether they be electronic or or paper, whatever form, Lord, that they would go to the right people and, Lord, not one would be lost. I pray, Father God, that um, the people that receive them, Lord, will be uh, will grow in, in righteousness and in, in your truth. Lord, that they be powerhouses for you, Father, in the corner of the world where you've put them, Father. Lord, we, we just thank you, Lord, that we are one body. Uh, we are your bride, Lord. And so, Father, we pray for the power of your word and the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to bring revival Strengthen your church and, Lord, may we see many, many people, many nations come to you, Lord, submit to you, come to you and, um, Lord, be able to say that um, your word uh, never fails and your promises never fail. Praise you, Lord. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Open Doors. And we ask, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to guide and to keep each person who works worldwide in this ministry. Lord, we ask that you'll bless them. You'll bless their families, bless their work. And, Lord, um, may it continue and prosper in your precious name. We ask these things. Amen. Amen.
Amen. Thank you so much, guys. And for our listeners, if you want to know more about Bible smuggling, we've got a few blogs up at the moment. One is about the different kinds of Bibles we distribute. One is the journey of a Bible smuggler. So if you want to know more, head to our website. You can give a Bible. $20 could deliver a Bible to a believer who doesn't have access to one. Uh, And as uh, we've mentioned, there's Bible distribution projects happening right now. Um, Your Bible could be uh, making its way into the hands of a believer um, in a country like, uh, you know, China or uh, or Malaysia or um, these countries where maybe we won't get there physically, but um, but there are our local partners who are distributing Bibles on the ground. So um, you can be a part of that. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been wonderful to be with you. Wonderful to be with you, Jill and John. We'll have to get you on for another one. It's been awesome. Thank you so much and we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast, your window into what following Jesus looks like in some of the darkest places in the world. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information on our work, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz.